0: And this Palestinian girl from Southwest, it's you always speak truth to power even if your voice shakes.
1: Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for joining us. That was the voice of Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib giving an emotional speech on the House floor earlier this month. Tlaib, who's the only Palestinian member of Congress, was speaking amid a horrifying escalation in the conflict between Israel and Palestine. She was imploring members of Congress to place value on the lives of Palestinian civilians. Let's hear just a little bit more of her speech.
0: I want to read something a mother named Iman in Gaza wrote two days ago. She said, quote, tonight I put the kids to sleep in our bedroom so that when we die, we die together and no one would live to mourn the loss of another one. The statement broke me a little more because of my country's policies and funding will deny this mother's right to see children live, her own children live without fear and to grow old without painful trauma and violence.
1: Now, Talib has family in the West Bank, something that she has talked about a lot In recent days, uh, she also had a chance to speak directly with President Joe Biden last week during his visit to Michigan, and she pressed him on his administration's continued support for Israel. Now, since then, Israel and Hamas have agreed to a ceasefire, which at least for now ends this latest wave of violence. But any real solution to this ongoing conflict seems really far off at this point, maybe further off than it has ever before. We're going to spend the entire day today talking about this. A little later, we're going to hear from two Wayne State University professors who have been discussing and debating this conflict for a long time. And before we get started, I I want to say just a couple of things about this. I have really strong personal feelings about what's going on in the Middle East the devaluation of the lives of people with brown skin, the justification of violence against a people largely because they have brown skin and are seen as less worthy than other people. I think you can't look at what's happening in the Middle East and not see a reflection of the narrative that plays out all over the globe with people of color, including here in America. Think of the things that we're talking about with regard to systemic inequality, historical systemic inequality, and the ways that the rhetoric that we hear about Palestinians reflect the way we hear a lot of people talk about African Americans or Latinos. It's really hard, I think, not to get emotional about these things. But I also want to say that as much experience as I have as a journalist here in Detroit and Chicago and Baltimore and Washington, I don't have a lot of experience covering the Middle East. And that's one of the reasons we haven't had an opportunity to really talk in depth about this subject here on the show. I wanted to wait until we could get the right people to have the right conversation. And so I'm hoping that what we'll be able to do today is do a little learning together about what's going on there, about the different dimensions of this conflict, and maybe, maybe understand just a little more about how complicated it is to really come up with solutions. So that is where we want to begin the conversation today. And I want to welcome Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib back to the program. Rashida, it's always great to have you here.
2: Thanks, Stephen, for having me.
1: So I want to start with that emotional floor speech you gave during the height of this wave of violence. You asked how many Palestinians have to die for their lives to matter. Talk about what you were feeling as you were making that speech.
3: Well, I think for so many of my neighbors here, probably don't know that, you know, I I remember as a little girl from 7 years old to 12 years old, and then even in my late teens, um, visiting my grandmother uh, in the West Bank uh, in Palestine. And, you know, we I would be holding her hand while we went through the checkpoints. Um, I remember uh, the moment and the trauma it caused me to... to Watch an Israeli military officer, you know, hold a, a huge gun towards towards her, and then later uh, was on a bus with my husband coming back from praying at Al Aqsa, and being asked, he was being asked to remove, be They removed him from the bus, and I watched as um, they dehumanized him, and uh, you know, I could see the fear in his body, uh, and. and And they just, you know, continued to do it, even though uh, I kept saying through the window of the bus, you're scaring him. Put the gun down. He doesn't have any weapons. He's not dangerous. Um, And I knew at that moment it was solely because both my grandmother and him and many of my family members are ethnically Palestinian, and they're treated less than under Israeli government. Hmm.
1: As you point out, you have family in the West Bank. I I wonder if you can talk specifically about what their experience has been like through this current wave of, of violence?
3: You know, it's, it's hard because, you know, my cousins who are kind of growing up kids now and trying to email you know, to our kids of what's happening, um, because at the same time, I'm trying to explain um, the policies and the history of displacement you know, and the possession racism in Israel, You have to do it in a way that also doesn't spew out any kind of hate for others, right? That this is this is not based on faith, but based on um, people's personal uh, racist, hateful uh, rhetoric uh, about power, about greed, and about many things that we only in our own politics here. And so, but for my family, I mean, Stephen, I called them after Ramadan ended, and I wanted to wish them to stay strong. Of course, on the phone, just scared that something's going to happen to them. And they're like, don't worry, you know, it's all written in God. And then they, then my else, where are you at? And I said, I'm in the cab, my way your security. And I go, okay, you should, I think, um, you know, more than ever, you know, I'm their, their granddaughter. <laughs> but it's hard. I remember, you are, you belong to a family. So it's hard, it's hard, Stephen, as you're going to hear I just hope people, have a human, God, they just want to be rated and live. You know, they want to be able to go to the doctors without going to your tech points or send their child to a school with running water. They just, they want to live. Some of them say, you know, we don't care who's in power. Just leave us be. Let us be. Children, don't take our husbands. Don't take, you know, don't do that to the elderly folks kneeling down at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, praying, worshiping. And attack them solely for existing, solely because they're Palestinian and they're not the ethnicity or the faith that the government says, okay, you, you, you deserve human dignity. And and these are Palestinians, honestly, if you ever talk to my grandmother and everyone, and I told the president this, you can hear it in their voices. They just, they want to go to a beach and just have a picnic with their families. You want to be able to just breathe without worrying this anxiety that comes with you when you leave your home. Uh, that if you go to Ramallah to go shopping, that you might not come home or you might be terrorized. That is their apartheid Israel. And it's not just Human Rights Watch, but it's Israel's largest human rights organization who also said this is apartheid. And it's behind that our country recognizes it. This is unbelievably uh, uh, painful. For many Americans, not just me as a Palestinian, but I know millions of Americans across the country, I've watched them march, say enough, enough using our resources, enough us looking away uh, and pretending that these are not human beings, that these are not families, that these are not children. They're using our resources, our money, our weapons to completely oppress and kill and just, you know dehumanize a whole people for solely existing.
1: Mm. I want to take a second here and just apologize to listeners. Uh, We are having some technical problems that are uh, interfering with the ability to hear exactly what uh, Congresswoman Talib is saying. And and it's really maybe the worst possible timing because I think, uh, you know, uh, the the emotional power of what she's talking about right now is really – Terribly critical to understanding what's going on here, um, Rashida. I I, I want to talk about the conversation you had with President Biden. He was here to help kick off the new fancy electric truck that Ford is uh, is gonna is gonna unveil, and you went up to him and said, "Hey, I need to talk to you about the the Middle East," uh, which I thought was a, a really brave and uh, an important thing to do, talk about what you said to him and what he said back
3: you know I think it's it's important to know you know the president um, uh welcomed uh, you know I welcomed him to my hometown with a smile as I always do for anybody coming to shower us with uh you know at least um, elevating uh, all the incredible things that we do here and what we birth here uh in in Wayne county, and one of the things that. You know, he asked about was my grandmother. And right away, um, I expressed the disappointment and the fact that that his words, that President Biden, your words are being used against people like myself and other members of Congress who are speaking up against those that violate international human rights. People are hiding behind your words when they say enough with the killing in Gaza, enough with the attacking of Palestinians in Jerusalem, enough with forcing them out of their homes, enough with detaining children. They use the words of our president uh, against us. They're saying enough and want to hold this country accountable and its leaders accountable to their illegal actions, to their inhumane actions. And you know, I promise not to share what he said to me, but know this, every answer I responded with, but it's not working. Mr President, it's simply not working. They attacked Al Aqsa during the month of Ramadan on the most holy days. They did it intentionally to create the kind of I think reaction, but they also did it to say, We don't care if it's Ramadan. We don't care if you're kneeling in prayer You are not going to be treated with a sense that you are a human being. We're going to attack. And this is not the first time. And this continuation to say, oh, we have a... The day after the ceasefire, yet again, they went in there, and it was Israeli forces with the police in there and attacked uh, worshipers on Friday. And so this continued cycle of violence may not be airplanes uh, throwing bombs in Gaza, but on the ground, many Palestinians are still living, not only with fear, but also living under this form of oppression and discrimination. I mean, the consistent racism of just kill them all. That's the the the, the mobs in the streets, death to Arabs. I mean, this is, again, what is happening in Israel right now. And, and when he speaks up, when the president speaks up and says, we stand with Israel— are you not clarifying yourself? Are you standing with the death to Arabs mob? Are you standing with those that are attacked at their place of worship? What are we standing up for? Because this blanket kind of support without an understanding that the country's uh, politics, but also their, their policies and laws, again, these are human rights agencies within the own country and outside of the country that are saying that they are violating international human rights law but they're violating agreements that our own country has signed, right? The United States were part of those agreements. But we sit idly by and we try to uh, discuss this in a way that I think honestly doesn't recognize Palestinian life at all in those conversations. And I think he, he heard me, uh, and I, and again, I did it in the most, most respectful way and continue to tell him, you know, it's just not working. Every time he responded, Stephen... Um, understanding that he believes that this is the only way, I I pushed back and said, but understand that it's not working and more people are dying.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm talking with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. She's a Democrat who represents Michigan's 13th congressional district. Uh, We're talking about what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, Rashida is uh, Palestinian and has family in Palestine, uh, but also, of course, represents a a wide array of people here in in southeast Michigan and so is uh, a critical part of the discussions about U.S. policy in the region and uh, solution making. Uh, If you would love to join the conversation, we'd love to have you. 313-577-1019, as always, is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh we'll try to we'll try to work you into the conversation. Um so as as this unfolds, the, you know, the, there is this tension in the narrative between what's happening to Palestinians and the concerns that uh Israelis and Jewish people around the planet have about the security of Israel. That is the that is the issue they Raise up, I think, the highest as uh, a reason to, to to justify the things that are that are going on, and I don't want to get into uh, the. I mean, I think we've we've we, we've made it clear that the response here is outsized and and uh, dehumanizing to the Palestinian people. But I but I do want to give you a chance to talk about what you think about the security concerns. That Israel is raising, and yeah, and I mean, I'll, you think, I will, yeah, go ahead.
3: Yeah. Well, no, I think Stephen, listen to Jewish voices for peace. Listen to if not now, many of these are my Jewish neighbors who are saying, but this is not making this is not making Israeli citizens safer, is it? And that that is that is it, it, you know when I say to the president, it's not working. I say to Israel, it's not working. Your policies are not making. You're safer if that's if that really is the intent, Stephen. If that truly is the essence and the intent, uh, I I I mean I say this about even policing in our own country. Uh, It's not you know you can't police away homelessness. You can't police away uh, you know poverty. You can't bomb away oppression. You can't bomb away the you know literally this outdoor prison. You You just can't do it and have a result of where it's going to be more peaceful. It is just absurd that people don't get it. Bombs and war and killing and apartheid and oppression and racism is not going to make anyone safer. It just doesn't work. Why? Because you're not recognizing the other has a right to exist, that the other has a right to live. And I've seen this play out in our own communities here at home, you know, I, I've been always consistently talking to my neighbors and saying, you know, I've been pushing this issue on water, you know, the access to water. And I said, hey, from Detroit to Gaza, water is a human right. And understanding, you know, even the form of removing water from people is a form of violence. People need to understand these actions are violence, uh, And these form of violence is not making anyone safer. Mm. Uh, no matter what country you are, you, in essence, know that. But is this about staying in power and control and oppressive policies that feed into, you know, anti-Palestinian rhetoric that, you know, people need to hear to basically because you don't have any policies, you don't know how to get there, but through hate rhetoric. And that's exactly what you see with Netanyahu and those even before him and those now in power.
1: Yeah, I, I want to take a couple of calls here. To add that uh, perspective to the conversation, let's go to Jack in Madison Heights. Jack, what's on your mind?
4: I just yeah, just a few comments. Uh, what you, you, representative, what was your response to the uh, Yom Kippur War when Israel was attacked on their most holy of ho- of holidays? And what's your response to the fi- the bombs being fired on on the Shabbos? And more importantly, Shavuos, the day that we receive the Torah. I don't hear you speaking about that, and you're only—you know—you're just critical of the Israeli government for the attacks uh, uh, while people were praying during Ramadan. I just don't think you're—you're looking at this from both sides and candidly. I don't think you're being honest.
1: So, so Jack, before I have Rashida answer, do you justify? Do you think Israel is justified in doing what it's doing right now? Is that what you're saying?
4: to defend themselves, yes, I think it's justified. So,
1: so Jack, let me let me say something to you, and just have you react. George Floyd passed a t- fake twenty dollar bill at a store, and the response from the police was to kneel on his neck for nine minutes and and end his life. Don't you think that there is a a concept called proportionality that matters, appropriateness. I mean, Jack, do you really think that what Israel's doing is properly def- def- uh, described as defense? Uh, do you not see the parallel here when we're talking about people of color that this idea that somehow we bring on ourselves the violence? That other people have decided is what we deserve I mean Jack, do, do you not see that parallel?
4: well let, no, I don't and if I just may uh, I happen to be I'm a defense attorney and um, and you know I have, I've had but you know so I've had a somewhat I've had some conflict of my personal view and and what happened, but the reality is in terms of the George Floyd, you know I, my feeling is that any person of color that's stopped by the police has a right. I mean, if I was in that position, I, I, I don't know what I would do, but I'll tell you, I don't know that I would stay for the cops to come and interrogate me, to brutalize me, as the case may be. But I don't think that it's a fair comparison to what is to compare what happened to George Floyd, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, with the, what's happening in, in the Middle East right now. Okay. I don't think that's a, a okay. good comparison at
1: all. Okay, Jack, I mean I I just got to say I disagree and I think that's a blindness that is dangerous and baked in the white supremacy that defines our culture. I'm sorry, but not seeing that is a willful act and a willful support of the status quo. Uh, Rashid, I'll give you a chance to respond to what no, I said about and, it. No, and
3: look, Jack, I hear your I hear you and uh, in what you're trying to to convey, but you know what I hear, it's it's rooted in and I can hear the Islamophobia. I can hear the pure hate that you have towards Palestinians, as if my grandmother was the one that hurt those folks worshiping, as if those children, as if somehow uh, they're all connected, that they all, that you know, this sense of just blanketly saying that somehow, and this is exactly the rhetoric that comes out of Israel media. Uh, I've heard it from Israeli, uh, you know, government elected officials that somehow the Palestinians uh, are inherently violent, that they're savages, that they don't know how, that they're not civil. I mean, these are things that I grew up, uh, obviously, learning from my black teachers at Detroit Public Schools of what they used to say about black America, black folks, my black neighbors here. Um, and, and, and I can hear it. I can hear it when people come after and say, what about this, Rashida? What I hear is this, it's rooted in racist views of what Palestinians really want and demand. And let me tell you, there have been so much different resistance from boycott to protesting in the streets. Even those that protested against uh, uh, pushing people more into refugee status in East Jerusalem in those communities, especially, especially Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, they are now being arrested they, this is supposed to be a democracy, right, in the Middle East. They are now being targeted and arrested. And what we really are telling Palestinians fighting against oppression, fighting against racism, is the same thing being told to Black Americans fighting police brutality, that there is no form of acceptable resistance to state violence except the denial of your human humanity and your dignity. And I just want to push back and saying you know, without being defensive, and it's hard because I have to continue to disclaim violence as I'm trying to push and say, see the people for the Palestinian people. They want to live. They want to be able. I mean, honestly, I hear from mothers there. Now that I've been out there, you know, they're sending me messages, Stephen, saying I just wanted them to have a great aid once for them to feel like a child, Mm -hmm. not one that has to worry about any noise coming out of their windows or that their father is not going to come home. I mean, this is the reality of what they're living under. And again, violence against violence against violence and all the forms of violence, because it doesn't have to be bombs. It just also has to be these kinds of policies that doesn't recognize again, their right to exist and to live. And so I think, you know, all those that come from that view of Jack is because in essence, they're coming from a fact that can hear it, mm-hmm. that Palestinians don't deserve peace. They didn't deserve to exist and they don't deserve to push back and say enough, mm-hmm. enough with vilifying, with saying that I don't have a right to uh, be able to breathe, have a right to be able to uh, you know, live peacefully with my family. And again, you know, I appreciate what you're saying, too, uh, Stephen, because it is something that I'm trying to help people understand, because sometimes the rhetoric out there, even around just regular media, it really waters down Mm. uh, the pain of what is Palestinians experiencing. But I always say this, you know, Trump, Trump didn't speak for me. He didn't speak for a lot of Americans. Some of the folks speaking sometimes I don't feel like are speaking for the Palestinian people, or not speaking for others. Again, everyone needs to recognize that um, and, and not to continue to fall into this trap. As this again, which which to me leads to just more um, violations of Palestinians' human rights. Human yeah. rights. Yeah.
1: Okay, uh, Rashida Talib, uh, Congresswoman from Michigan's 13th district. It's always really great to have you here on the show, but today I think it was really critical to get your voice in on this conversation. I'm really grateful for the time you were able to give us. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about Israel and Palestine we two professors here at Wayne State University who have been talking about this issue, debating uh, between them for some time. Howard Lupovich is a professor of history, and Saeed Khan is a lecturer in Near Eastern Asian Studies here at Wayne. We're going to talk to them next about what is going on in the Middle East and how we ought to be thinking about it. Stay with us for more of the today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking about what's going on in the Middle East uh, this hour, and we just heard from Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is, of course, part of uh, the policymaking in Washington around this issue, but also is somebody who is Palestinian and has family in the region, had a very personal take on all of that. We want to switch the conversation just a little bit here and talk a little more about policy and history uh, in the region. Howard Lupovich is Associate Professor of History and Director of the Cohn Haddow Center for Judaic Studies at Wayne State University. Howard, welcome back to Detroit Today.
5: Thank you. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me back.
1: And uh, Said Khan is a Senior Lecturer of Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University. Said, welcome back to Detroit Today. Yep, thank uh, you, Stephen. Yes, great. Okay, uh, Howard, I actually want to start with you, uh, and I want to have you talk uh, about the, this conflict from the, the perspective of Israel, from the perspective of Jewish people, um, and, and how you see what's happened in the last week, um, and, and how you think it fits into the, the long narrative of this conflict Uh, In the Middle East, Uh, we we just heard Congresswoman Tlaib talk about the dehumanization that Arabs uh, feel and are are affected by. Uh, I want to get the other perspective in here um, uh, from 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 your chair.
5: Okay, well, thank you. Well, I mean, the, the, real que- the real question is where to start. I mean, there's the long conflict and there's the more recent conflict and there's the even more more recent conflict. I think from an Israeli perspective, uh, the, the place to start is, the, 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 well, most Israelis, I would say, in fact, a, a recent survey showed that 70 percent of Israelis favor the creation of a Palestinian state, at least as of a year or two ago. But another, another survey also showed that 70% of Israelis are afraid or believe that if there is a Palestinian state next to Israel, it poses an existential threat to the survival of the state of Israel. So you have those two, let's say those two beliefs, those two opinions side by side among Israelis. And I think the way to sort of get through that impasse between those two points of view is the first thing we have to do is to differentiate between the policies of the current Israeli government— and how most israelis view this conflict and how most israelis view palestinians because not unlike what congresswoman talib uh, said most israelis they want peace and stability and they want to be able to live lives and raise their children uh, and you know they, they they have the memory of times when it was more when it was easier to do that in Israel, but also have the memory, even the pretty recent memory of when it was dangerous to do that. Let's, let's remember, it's it's less than 20 years ago where there was a rash of suicide bombers. That that really was what upended the Oslo peace accords, one of the factors. So I think looking at this current conflict, we, we have to keep that in mind. The other thing is, you know, for me, what strikes me right on the eve of the beginning of this current conflict—I don't just mean the exchange of, uh, you know, of Hamas firing missiles and the Israeli military retaliating, but these, these, uh, the, the riots between Arabs and Jews in towns and the events at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I mean, right, right before all this started, the, the state of Israeli politics was on the cusp of really taking a remarkable step forward. Hmm. First of all, moving beyond Benjamin Netanyahu, which to my mind is the first step towards any kind of progress in, uh, in, in resolving this conflict. But secondly, there they, they were forming a coalition government or trying to form a coalition government that not only didn't include Netanyahu, but also included left-wing and right-wing parties. And for the first time was Going to include an Arab-Israeli party as part of the governing coalition, and this really came as in part as a result of cooperation between Arabs and Jews in Israel during COVID, and this current conflict derailed that, and that's very difficult. Mm. One other thing I would say, and this and this goes to what the the, the caller Jack mentioned about the Yom Kippur War in, of, of 1973. Mm-hmm. It seems like a long time ago, but any Israelis. And and I would go further. American Jews as well. If you're old enough to remember that moment, you know, and I was nine years old in 1973, so I remember it. It was frightening. Uh, It was a moment when it looked like the state of Israel was going to be destroyed. I, I was going to a Jewish school at the time, and there were teachers in my school who left, Israelis, who left in the middle of the semester to go join the army to defend the state. So if you're old enough to remember that moment, then you don't take the existence of the state of Israel or the security of the state of Israel for granted. Now, if you're not old enough to remember that moment, so I would say especially American Jews who are younger than I am, which means under 50, if you don't remember that, you're less concerned about Israeli security. But there are many Israelis who remember that, who not only fought to defend the state, but have relatives or have brothers or parents who fought for the state. So that security issue is a real issue and so from an israeli perspective this isn't a war or a conflict against the palestinian people per se this is a conflict against palestinian violence and specifically in this case this is a conflict against hamas if if we could remove hamas from the equation this would resolve more easily in the same way if we could move the israeli right wing extremists who tend to be more violent from this equation, this this conflict would resolve itself very quickly mm. in a way that I think both Israelis and Palestinians could live with.
1: Mm. Uh, Saeed, I, I want to get you to respond to that, but also add the, the, the knowledge and perspective that you have to the conversation here about what we're seeing and why we're seeing it.
6: Well, I agree with uh, with Howard that, uh, I mean, uh, framing it in the, the biggest issues of uh, Hamas and uh, the Israeli settlers and trying to find some kind of a solution for that. Uh, I would, though, beg to differ that uh, Hamas is a fairly recent uh, development uh, when it comes to uh, the intransigence in, in the area. And might I say, it doesn't help that the Palestinian Authority um, hasn't held elections uh, in 15 years. Uh, it has proven to be quite impotent, which gives Hamas, ironically, even more oxygen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as a result of the fact that there are no elections, that there is this kind of paralysis politically uh, within Palestine, uh, Hamas is the only force that's doing anything in the perception of, uh, of the Palestinians. So that becomes quite problematic. The other thing is that uh, if the elections were held in the Palestinian territories, uh, it's likely that the PA would be removed completely and Hamas might win. After all, Hamas did win the elections in Gaza in 2005 in uh, what even uh, international observers uh, said was quite an open and transparent uh, election. But I think that the bigger issue is, uh, and uh, Howie alluded to this, I think it'd be really interesting to take a third poll in Israel. And that would be that in 20 years, what would Israel look like politically and demographically? And part of the way to understand what's happening uh, currently, along with the anxieties and the fears, is that Israel is simply moving farther and farther to the right. And as a result of it, uh, in 20 years, will Israel look more like Tel Aviv, or will Israel uh, be defined more by the settlements? Mm. And as a result of this demographic shift, and certainly we can talk about demographic shifts even here in the United States and how it affects <laughs> politics and how it affects the so-called culture wars, we're finding then that the, um, the, the space for some kind of return to a negotiation where there can be some kind of resolution uh, is uh, looking uh, precarious because the center is in jeopardy of no longer holding. As Howard said, there was this wonderful moment uh and it still could exist uh the opposition in Israel has 8 days uh to form a coalition government it's looking unlikely and in large part because i think that uh prime minister netanyahu has played this beautifully uh that uh there could have been a new era in uh, in israel uh a way for even the the right wing uh to recognize that pragmatism over sloganeering uh was the only future forward Uh, So I think we need to really go ahead and take that into account uh, when we take a look then at what could be the future for some kind of a a resolution Mm. uh, between uh, these two sides. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Howard Lupovich and Saeed Khan. We'll also get to your calls Uh, if you want to talk about what's going on in the Middle East, uh, have questions about what's going on, about the history, about the present, about what we might see in the future, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to include you in the conversation. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
6: WDET delivers trusted news,
0: inclusive conversations, and cultural
6: experiences that empower the community.
0: 1019 WDET.
6: Detroit's NPR station.
1: You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... I'm really glad you've joined us. We're talking about the Middle East today, the violence that we have seen recently, the ceasefire, and what is maybe going to happen next. Uh, my guests are Howard Lupovich, Associate Professor of History and Director of the Cohn Haddow Center for Judaic Studies at Wayne State University. Also with us is Said Khan. He's a senior lecturer of Near East and Asian studies. At Wayne State University. Uh, we want to hear from you uh, about what you're thinking about, what we're seeing on television and reading in the newspapers. 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, for comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you. Let's go to Phyllis in Warren. Phyllis, welcome yeah. to the show. Good.
2: Good morning. I, I'm i appreciating your conversation today, and I, my thoughts have been going back as I've been watching the number of books on the Second World War that have been coming out onto the bookshelves, but the thing that I have to say is that it is three generations removed, at least, from the Holocaust. I think that what we're dealing with is our guilt at what we let happen. And we have to take and consider Israel a grown up country in which it has to act with the Palestinians and become a country talking to another country. Mm. And that the I do not approve of Hamas and its attack on Israel, but I also do not approve of Israel going in and deciding that it can set up uh, communities and take up land just because it is what Israel, the countries have to grow up. If you will pardon the expression and i I feel that we are all looking at these situations as in a paternalistic way, like we are still the parents taking care of this child that has suffered a lot, and I think we have to look at it in a different way, and I don't know whether I am right, I am wrong, but I am concerned and that because I do support the state of Israel. I supported the bringing in of these refugees during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. I was a child during the Second World War. I remember the uh, Warsaw ghettos pictures, and I remember these things as a child. And in 85 years, I've seen all these things occur. But Israel is a grown-up country. Palestine Mm -hmm. is a grown-up country. We are a grown-up people we have to look at the world as it is yeah. get these people together phyllis
1: I, I i really appreciate the call and that perspective uh uh howard i wanted to hear you react to that
5: sure well thank you phyllis for that comment and i i, I appreciate especially two things first of all you're, you're genuinely trying to look at this from both sides and that is so important whatever your particular point point of view or outlook or starting point is being able to look look at both sides is very important but secondly you're also trying to be, on the one hand be critical of the policies of the state of israel's government while supporting the state's right to exist and the ability to do that is also getting a lot more difficult. So I thank you for those very important comments. Now, the one thing I would say is that I agree with you, you're you're right, that the Holocaust is several generations ago, seven years ago or more, or more than that. But it it harkens back to, uh, you know, there was an anthropologist named Ernest Gellner who wrote about the phenomenon of nationalism, all kinds of national movements. And when he came to Zionism and the creation of the State of Israel, the way he sort of encapsulated it is he said that Zionism and the creation of the state of Israel, it solved a European problem by creating an Asian or a Middle Eastern problem. By that, what he meant was that that the experience of Jews, not only during the Holocaust, but in the diaspora generally, where anti-Semitism is something that has been endemic, that Jews have faced for a long time in many different places, and indeed, in the last week, are fa- are facing a spike in anti-Semitism in America and elsewhere, and certainly for the last decade. So the existence of the state of Israel as a Jewish state uh, it needs to address that. And that problem that from the vantage point of Israelis and from Jews, that that, that, that is still a problem. That is still an issue. The fact of Jews needing a refuge in case, not only not only with respect to the Holocaust, but with respect to anti-Semitism generally. But the other part. You know, you can't simply say the state must, the state should exist as a Jewish state. The, the the fact that the state also created this problem also has to capture our attention. And I think your comment was able to look at it from both from both points of view. And it comes down to the fact that the state of Israel was created not only to be a Jewish state, but also to be a democratic state. And the task of the state of Israel and the task of people who support the state of Israel is to recognize that both of those things are necessary. Both sides of Ernest Gellner's equation have to be addressed. The state has to be both Jewish and democratic at the same time. And it comes back to the current Israeli government, which, as Sa'id noted so well, that it's moving to the right. It seems to be moving away from the basic principles of democracy that are hardwired into the declaration of the state of Israel, but also into the thinking of virtually every Zionist thinker across the political spectrum from left to right. And so I think your comment really brings that out. So thank
1: Mm you. Uh, Again, Phyllis, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's quickly go to May in Detroit May, what's on your mind?
7: Hi, um, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate that you guys are discussing this. Um, I live in Detroit. I lived overseas in Palestine for a few years before I came back over here, um, and I just wanted to comment on. I continue. I'm continuously hearing, you know, it's a Jewish state. Obviously, that's what it was created to be, and this is a Jewish problem versus the Arabs, and this is anti-Semitism is on the rise. And however. As a pro-Palestinian here in Detroit, I have so many Jewish allies. There's Christian Palestinians, there's Jewish Palestinians, and there's Muslim Palestinians. There's a broad fact this is not a Muslim versus Jewish issue, and this is not the reason that anti-Semitism is on the rise because we have so many allies. However, that's just a shift that this is taking to move the focus away from the current conflict and what really what really needs to happen for it to be resolved so i definitely feel like that should be mentioned Mm. um and then and then i just also wanted to say that people are coming on here and they're making it seem kind of like they're trying to look at both perspectives but then there's a second part that they say that is not including any second perspective Mm. Um, when you speak about israel and the history of israel you also have to take into consideration the steps that it took to get to where they are today, the consequences that other people are suffering, that Israel is not suffering from, to get to where they are today, to form their state, at what cost did it come to that they formed that state? So while we're talking about progress, we also have to think about the, re- the regression that happened on the other side for Israel to continuously make progress.
1: Right, right. May, may, I... I uh really appreciate the call and the really thoughtful comments as well. Saeed, I want to have you react to what May is saying here.
6: Right. I appreciate, May, your comments and also Phyllis's. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why Howard and I as historians, we are professional analysts and we're probably amateur moralists. We have to take a look at the long picture of history and, uh, and the arc that it creates and try to then process uh, the facts. And I think uh, to uh, just uh, bounce off what Phyllis was saying uh, with her uh, really insightful remark about World War II, we can go even further back to World War One. And I think one of the things to recognize then is what was the enabling of uh, what Howie talks about uh, so well, uh, the establishment of the creation of uh, the State of Israel. Unfortunately, one of the tragedies for both uh, the Arabs and the Israelis is that uh, this territory was reorganized uh, in order to serve the strategic purposes of other people uh, in World War One, the British and the French. And so when we're dealing with already a flawed architecture, uh, we then have to play a lot of catch-up, and we have to then recognize that when it comes to bigger uh, parties pushing the chess pieces around the board, uh, that has then created a legacy which has lasted about a hundred years. Now, At the same time, I think it's important to recognize that when it comes to who uh, formally recognizes both of these states, uh, 171 countries recognize Palestine, 164 recognize Israel. Uh, Some will argue, and I think this is a conceit in the West, but yes, which countries and which countries that matter, which of course reeks of a little bit of chauvinism and even racism. But I think it's important uh, to recognize that as the shift is starting to happen in the 21st century with the rise of Asia, I think we then need to then go ahead and assess what is going to be the centrality not only of the Middle East, uh, but also Israel and Palestine in the imagination of those who are the architects of creating this, Britain, France, and then more recently custodians like the United States as then the strategic value of the Middle East is going to shift, it's going to have a profound impact on the way that many of these powers look at Israel and Palestine. And unfortunately, Western countries, especially European countries, have a long history of abandoning their toys when they realize that they feel that they're broken. So I think that we then have, uh, at the same time, a predicament, but then also the possibility of an opportunity that a new set of eyes will look at uh, this conflict. And if the West wants to have any kind of relevance and any kind of input in what happens, uh, they could probably do a good job in predicting what's going to happen and having more of a hand in fixing it at this point.
1: Okay. Say Khan and Howard Lopovich, it's always great to have the two of you here with us for these conversations. I'm really, really thankful for you for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Tomorrow, we're going to have law professor and MacArthur Grant awardee Jonathan Rapping to talk about his new book, Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.